Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 29 in our 2014 series. And today's date is the 1st of August. And what's on the schedule this week, Leon? Well, Gary, we start off with a fascinating interview with a guy in America called Gary Keir, and he's developed an outfit called Carbon X-Print Bonds. And basically, these bonds are being sold as financial instruments to fight climate change. Yeah, he's very passionate about that. Uh, He lives in Manhattan in what he calls a tiny apartment, but uh, he is very concerned about the environment. It's going to be a fascinating interview, and uh, it's a question of whether financial instruments can actually be used in 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 this battle. Yeah, we talked to him about whether or not be, you could develop a market in these bonds. Uh, he's a bit uncertain, but the idea generally is that you can buy them, uh, the bank uses the money and uh, gives you some interest. That's right. And after that, we have a chat with economist Francis Gray all about the dollar. And Francis believes a high dollar is here to stay. But in the meantime, let's have a chat with Gary Keir. Gary Keir, tell us about um, CXP bonds. How do they work? Uh, Carbon X Print is a process that certifies offsetting your carbon footprint by making a uh, socially responsible investment in renewable energy and energy efficiency. And the way it works is it works just like a CD at a bank, a certificate of deposit, a term deposit. But it's better, of course, because it's a socially responsible investment. And what you would do is you measure your carbon footprint, and that's measured in tons of greenhouse gases. And then you would go to a bank online or in purchase, and you would purchase these uh, carbon X-print CDs. Now, they're sold by the ton of uh, greenhouse gases. Now, I think in Australia, it's $24.15 a ton. 10 tons would be $241.50, etc. The bank then certifies that you took action or you're uh, offsetting your carbon footprint. They take that money and they loan it out to renewable energy and energy efficiency projects. The bank makes money on these projects. And at the end of the term, you get your money back plus some interest. And, and how? what's the schedule of the interest? I mean, how much is that? Well, right now in the United States uh, of five-year CD is paying between one and a half and two and a half percent. Right. And so it's comparable to that. So who are the uh, major clients that you bring in? Well, right now we're still, uh, cert- this process has to be licensed to a bank because of the banking rules in the United States. I need to license it to a bank and we're searching for a bank. We want the right partner. We want a bank that's going to make money and we want the customers to make some money and we need to reduce greenhouse gases. So we're still searching for that right partner. Right. And uh, so how's that process going? I mean, what's been the response of the bank so far? Uh, so far, I've had uh, some positive response. Some of the smaller banks that I've talked to have, you know, they, they'd like to do it. They just don't know if they can fit it in right now. And I've made some inroads to one of the larger banks, and we'll see how that goes. It's been positive so far. So uh, keep my fingers crossed. There are two benefits here. One is saving the planet, and the other one is uh, making people money. That's correct. Um, you know, for many of us, uh, myself, I live in a small New York City apartment and we do as much as we can about climate change. I walk, I recycle, but uh, there's I don't there's not much else I can do. I can't change the insulation in my walls or put solar collectors on my roof. I don't even have a thermostat in this apartment and I was wondering what else I could do. So this gives everybody a way to become engaged in uh, saving the planet and reducing climate change. Is this uh, is this probably the best way to address climate change through financial mechanisms, through financial tools like bonds? Well, if we look at the problem of climate change, most of the technology that we need to solve the problem 
already exist, except for some of the storage issues. Uh, energy efficiency in buildings, we know how to do that. We have solar collectors that are now at price parity in, in some states in the United States with uh, the electric grid. So much of this already exists and all we have to do is pay for it. We have to change our energy infrastructure and that's going to take money. And of course, uh, do, do you see this uh, these sorts of tools being used in other countries as well? Uh, when I applied for the patent, I applied for something called an international PTC, which puts me in line at the patent offices in I think 128 countries. So I can see it being used in other countries, especially uh, where you are in, in Australia, in the Philippines, Indonesia, in India. I can definitely see that. I would hope to see that. Do you see much demand for this? Well, I think it's the, the demand is increasing. Um, my brother works for a large uh, manufacturer, and he says that from some of the, their clients, they're seeing stronger and stronger sustainability requirements to be in the supply chain. I think that this could really help out some of the companies that want to make a efficiency upgrade or a renewable energy installation, but just don't think it's the right time right now to do so for various reasons. Maybe their equipment is still not ready to be turned over yet. This could help them uh, stay in the supply chain, remain competitive, stay in the game, and also do something about climate uh, change at the same time, demonstrate their uh, sustainability. Gary, what complication would there be? I mean, you say that under the US banking rules, you have to, there are certain restrictions on what you can do. And the same would apply if you went to, uh, sold in other countries, would it? I, I believe so. Uh, that's why my goal was to license it to financial institutions for, there's really two reasons. One, because of the banking laws in the United States. And the other is I think that this idea could spread much faster with existing institutions than if I tried to start it myself and create a company and grow it. Many of the banks in my neighborhood, I think almost all of the banks in my neighborhood have an international presence. So most banks are international now. They could spread it faster. Yes, I, I believe it could spread much faster through banks. And there would also be the opportunity of uh, a market in the bonds, wouldn't it as well? Uh, right now, I don't have uh, any plans to uh, sell the bonds, once to trade the bonds once they're sold. They're really CDs. But what I, I do see happening with more and more standardization of um, solar loans, for instance, on National Renewable Energy Lab, United States has created a standard for solar contracts. So all the contracts in the future should be very similar. And uh, True Solar ha also has uh, standardized some of the risks for solar contracts. And Environmental Defense Fund has standardized processes for energy efficiency. So as these processes become more and more standardized, the bank can then loan the money out with these standard contracts. It'd be much easier for them to securitize these loans and sell them off to institutional investors. They could then use that money for additional renewable energy and energy efficiency projects. But potentially it could also open up a market for bonds too, where people could trade bonds with each other, much in the same way that uh, uh, that happened in the housing market in the US. That's potentially correct, That's, yes. And that would actually drive the development of that much further, wouldn't it? It, it could. Uh, I'm, I'm, I haven't thought that all the way through. I think it could. I've, I go back and forth on that a little bit. Um, but I think it could. I, once we get it into the banking industry, I think things could really begin to, to turn. 
So I, I agree with you. It very much could help push the process along. In terms of return on the investment, uh, you're looking at, what, about 2% kind of thing. How does that compare with, say, a straight bank uh, deposit rate in the U.S.? Well, right now the uh, a five-year CD rate is between 15 and 2.5%, so it'd be very comparable. And as we're looking at this, it's you wouldn't look at this as an investor. This would be more competitive with uh, cap and trade or the carbon tax. So it will allow it, would, the bank would basically be selling a type of allowance to an individual or company for their carbon footprint. But instead of being a penalty or a tax, it would be an investment. So I think it's much more palatable than some of the other methods that are proposed for reducing our carbon footprint. Now, Obama has announced sweeping changes to America's environmental laws and uh, uh, conditions. And do you think that will aid the development of these bonds? I think it very it very much could. Uh, this idea could be used in, in multiple ways. I can actually... The proposal by the EPA is for coal-fired power plants mostly, and they want to reduce them by the emissions by 30%. I think that carbon X-print could help. Utilities could use it and maybe share that responsibility with some of their customers. So their customers could buy some of these carbon X-print bonds, help reduce utilities' footprint, and then everybody makes out. The customer's making some money. The utility has a little more time to switch over to a more renewable sources, and the uh, the air is cleaner. It has less carbon dioxide. Well, that's very interesting. And uh, Gary Kia, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been it's a pleasure. Thank you. It sounds simple enough. I just hope it works. I'm not sure it will. It's a very complicated area, isn't it? But uh, anyway, the best of luck to him. And now to Francis. Francis Gray, the dollar has been trading at about 94 cents and uh, the government of the Reserve Bank, Glenn Stevens, has been jawboning, trying to talk it down. But it looks like it's staying there. What's your view? My view is that uh, the governor can jawbone all he likes, but the world has changed. And they at the Reserve Bank haven't recognised that. So what we're seeing here is that the world that Grant Stevens grew up in, and all of us grew up in, if you're sort of in your 40s to 50s, is one of uh, you know America, a dominant country, Europe, a strong economic space, and China, a blip on the horizon. In the new world we're in, China is obviously a big country on the horizon, and Asia in general is now huge on that horizon. And the net effect of that is that there's more cash floating around in, in this part of the world, which is having all sorts of effects, one of which is on the Australian currency and its long-term structural value. So how does that impact on the dollar? Tell, please explain to us how that works. Well, in, in, that, in that old world, uh, we actually had met the rise of Japan. Our currency had um, adjusted to that and, and eventually went up and down. In the new world that we're in, we've got a country in China and in many parts of Asia where the growth there is actually forcing money offshore. So there's a new factor on the horizon, not just commodity prices, not just our exports, but the export of, of cash out of Asia into safe havens in the Western world where they, they think they cannot be taxed and they can't be, take, can't be taken away from them. And so the money from China and Asia is finding its way into Australia, which is forcing up the dollar. 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's far worse than I thought. I, I was surprised to see statistics which showed that the biggest outflow of currency from, of cash from China is to America, and the second biggest target is Australia. I mean, and I, that surprised me. I thought it might have been Europe or, or somewhere else. But the fact is Australia, I think, tells us an awful lot about how Chinese people with money actually think about protecting their futures. Australia is nearby. It's well known. It's relatively safe and, and, and benign. Uh, and uh, they're using it to park money here, which means our currency now has a new demand source, which is China. And you see this continuing? This is, this is only the beginning. This is only the beginning of this of this flow because China's economic future is uh, highly variable. Uh, if you want to pull a, a forecast of what's going to happen in the next 30 to 40 years, uh, you know, there'd be a wide variation, environmental leading to economic collapse or a brilliant achievement whereby China manages to industrialize the level of the United States. In either case, it means money flowing to Australia, one out of fear, one out of you know, new opportunities and diversifying your investment portfolio, which in Australia in our history has always been a country that's thought it had to beg for international capital to come here. Now we're a country that has to fight it off. And so where do you see the dollar tracking in that case? Well, that means that our dollar relative to other currencies has, is now going to trade at a much higher, much higher range relative to other currencies in the world. We haven't been a reserve currency before. And effectively, that's what this means in part as well. So a reserve currency is one where, like the United States, in times of crisis, people flee to that currency. Now, Australia's not got the United States um, cachet yet, but uh, it's certainly got some of that cachet in a uh, more general sense. Uh, and it's going to develop a cachet of that nature over time. So we see not just um, China, but uh, Asian elites in general moving money to Australia. We will see, we've seen reserve banks of the world moving money to Australia. And obviously, with our excellent economic management here, broadly speaking, there's uh, stability here, an econ economic stability that the world likes. So that means our currency now has another role to play in the world that it didn't have uh, even maybe seven years ago. Various uh, investment banks like, say, Credit Suisse are predicting that the dollar will fall to 86 cents. Some are saying even lower and some are saying, look, the comfort range is around 70 cents. What's your view about that? Uh, my view is that the, the, the market's not ca caught up yet with the structural change as well. So the, in a sense, it's like the ocean. The ocean has risen five metres okay, thanks to this change, the waves will always come in. There'll be deep waves, you know, and deep troughs. So th there will be troughs, but that doesn't mean that the currency is going to centre around a trough at, say, 60 or 65, which we're used to in our history. Uh, it might centre around a trough at, at 90, 95. It might bottom at 70, and it might peak out at $1.10 or $1.20. But bear in mind, this is a dynamic situation. So as the growth of China and Asia continue, the demand for, for places for that capital to go is going to just increase exponentially. And I, I spoke to a banker the other day, 35 years in banking, and he said, um, I don't do anything other than inward investment these days. I don't do anything else. I'm, I'm overrun with inward investment. And, and yet China's rise to economic um, equality is only 5% complete. There's 95% to go, and India's probably got 97% to go, and they're moving too. So you're saying the dollar could go up to $1.10, $1.20 American? I'm saying that the dollar will have a range 
around which it will it will obviously trade. Uh, the key question that we want to ask over the long term is where is the centre of that range? And that's what, uh, so in your question, you said, oh, could it go up to $1.10? Um, my question is, where's the centre of the range? And then we'll give you some parameters on that range. So at times, yes, $1.10 for sure. Uh, those, those times are coming back. Um, it could also drop down you know, to maybe 85, but we need to think of our currency as relatively stronger now to all other currencies on this little planet of ours. What sort of effect is that going to have on export? The mineral boom is gone. There's a lot of talk about agribusiness and other things. Manufacturing's largely had it. The effect of a very high dollar on that, how do you see that? I, I think that is a, a, a crucial question. Uh, there is an agri-boom uh, evolving, in my view, at this point. Uh, you can see that in, uh, say, the price of beef. There's doubled in 10 years. Um, manufacturing is in diabolical trouble in this country, but partly it's in diabolical trouble because the manufacturers need to decide which world they live in. And this currency question is critical to that. If they believe that they live in the old world that, you know, that I've just been talking about that's gone, then they'll continue the old ways. But if they believe they live in a new world of a high currency, then of a structurally higher currency on its average trading midpoint, then they will have to change their ways to become, as in my view, more like Switzerland and Germany. And they're actually the role models for Australia uh, economically going forward in terms of what our currency will look like. What does that mean for manufacturers? What would they have to do? Okay, they need to get on a plane, they need to go to Europe, they need to look at Switzerland, they need to look at Germany, and they need to look at the high quality manufacturing that they undertake figure out what it takes to deliver that, which I might add Australians are well capable of, in fact, more than capable of doing, and uh, and start delivering those high-value manufacturers that they have started to do in many places and, and can do very well, but they need to decide that is their future, high-value manufacturing, not any low-value stuff, and um, that that's, uh, that's a long-term prospect for Australia. And general exports, uh, like, say, the wine industry, the food industry? Yes, I think in the wine industry and the food industry, they actually need to follow the same standard. So if you take wine, wine is a major success. Uh, it hits at a range of price points around the world. As our currency rises, you want to actually position your wine at the higher end of the market, not the lower end of the market, to get higher value added. Uh, similarly, with our food and so on. If you look at, um, I'll, I'll take beef as an example. I saw a website the other day from the United States advertising organic beef from a particular source that was grass-fed top of the range. You speak to Asian people in this country who have relatives in China or in, in Asia, they'll tell you when they go to Asia, they won't eat local foods. They'll eat Australian foods because they know they're safe. You go to China, you see milk being delivered into China at $9 a litre. Why? Because Chinese consumers know it's safe. So on that one factor alone, the Australian food industry has a massive opportunity to meet that demand and, and grow itself. Uh, the only question is whether they wake up and seize the opportunity fast enough. So the push has to go to high quality and niche high quality. Uh, high quality, high value, and probably niche, because that seems to go with the territory. But having said that, um, you know, milk exports, milk's a pretty generic product, but um, nonetheless, it's got a high value in China, so that's where it's going to go. And so would wine. I mean, you can, in Shenzhen, for example, a bottle of, uh, I think it's Rawson's Retreat, sells for about $50. Here it's about 9 or 10 
Yes, that is absolutely right, and that's that's the future. I mean, the, the future of the one dollar a liter uh, offer from uh, from a certain supermarket in Australia compared with nine dollars a liter in Shanghai, it's it's a no brainer. What's going to happen? That's that's the opportunity for this food industry uh, in Australia. So all industries in this country need to face up to the high dollar and just move up the value chain and become and think of themselves as living in a high value country like Switzerland or Germany and not a low value bunch of um, you know, uh, rough farmers you know, who are on the bottom of the scale. But that's a, that means a big structural change for Australian industry, doesn't it? Yeah, mainly in their brains. A bit of innovation. In fact, a lot of it. A, a, a serious lot of innovation. Look, Australian manufacturing can be innovative. Like, don't, don't underestimate Australian innovation. I have met Australian manufacturers. They're the best in the world. When they get into something, they will beat everybody in their field. And they do it now. They've been doing it for a long time. But it's not seen as something we take as much pride in as we do other things. Francis Gray, thank you very much. So what do you think, Leon? I mean, the dollar's what, down a little today? Is it 93 and a bit? 93 and a bit, but it, look, it's going to hang around uh, 94, 95. And uh, Francis said there's a range from 85 to 110, 105. And that's, that's the range we have to live with. And yeah. I, I tend to agree with him because no, matter, no amount of jawboning by Glenn Stevens is bringing it down. No, it's not going to come down. There are forces beyond just words and, and what, what Australia says. It's, uh, in a sense, it's a reserve currency now. It's a reserve currency, and uh, China is quite a significant force, as Francis says. Right, now for the news. Well, Gary, first of all, uh, the US housing recovery remains choppy despite low interest rates. The number of contracts signed to buy previously owned homes in the US slipped in June, an index of pending home sales, reflecting purchases under contract but not yet closed, fell 1.1% according to a reading of the National Association of Realtors. And the above 100 reading indicates market activity is still average, if not robust. And that suggests Americans are unwilling or unable to enter the market despite low borrowing costs. At the same time, US consumer confidence has increased for the third consecutive month, according to the conference board. It rose to 90.9 in July. That's up from 86.4. Now, a year ago, it stood at 81. And the US economy has rebounded strongly this spring after first quarter contraction, eking out positive growth over the past six months and raising hopes for sustained growth in the second half of 2014. And GDP has come in at a seasonally adjusted rate of 4% in the second quarter. That's quite impressive. It is. 4% is terrific. I mean, you know, look at what's been going, say, a couple of years back. So that's a promising sign ahead. Now, to Australia... And the Environment Minister, Greg Hunt, has approved a $16.5 billion resources project that will lead to the creation of the biggest coal mine in Australia and one of the biggest in the world. Now, Hunt has imposed 36 conditions, primarily aimed at protecting groundwater on the Carmichael coal mine and rail project, which will dig up and transport about 60 million tonnes of coal a year for export. The huge Carmichael project is overseen by the Indian mining company Adani. It will consist of a network of open-cut and underground mines in the Galilee Basin region of central Queensland. Now, this area is about seven times the size of Sydney Harbour. It's going to be the largest coal mine possibly in the world, and coal will be taken via a new rail line to the point of uh, port of Point Abbott, north of Bowen, where Adani has already approval to be build a coal export terminal. And this is the part that's got environmentalists up in arms, is that 5 million tonnes of seabed is being dug up and dumped within the Great Barrier Reef 
marine park in order to expand Abbott Point for these exports, primarily to India. Yep, and it, that's going to cause all sorts of ructions, political and, and otherwise, um, because the Barrier Reef is under threat as bits of it are dying already and the silt from uh, these dumpings will uh, will increase that. And the, yeah, well the environmentalists uh, are talking about the potential impact upon the reef, they're talking about the uh, groundwater and the hefty carbon emissions. Yeah. And so, you know, this is, this is quite... But, but, you know, the interesting thing here is there are a total of nine mining projects planned for the area. So this could be one of many. That is going to drive down the price of coal. That's right. That's right. And uh, But at the same time, there's been a report by Newport Consulting, and they're finding the mining sector is growing increasingly cautious about the future. And confidence in the local industry is now at a five-year low. And leaders are worried about weakening demand, softening prices, and a challenging regulatory environment. They say the sector's future is now out of their control, which is a sign of troubled times ahead. 93% of respondents weren't confident about growth in the coming year. And to me, that says that the coal industry is on borrowed time, Gary. You look at what happened to uh, the iron ore market. BHP and Rio increased their output. The price dropped. Well, this is the problem, Gary. I think any business that relies on higher prices or more sales is on borrowed time. And the coal industry is like that. Mm. That's a big problem. And also uh, the Commonwealth Bank Future Business Index, they found that confidence among mid-sized businesses fell in the June quarter. They held around average levels despite the federal budget. They eased to 10.4 points in the quarter compared with 14.3 points in the March quarter. Now, there's been a warning from Standard & Poor's about the high level of credit exposure to residential properties for Australian banks, and they're saying that's a natural red flag. And they're saying there's going to be a problem as unemployment grows and we get slower growth. Yeah, and there's also the threat of uh, amendments to capital gains taxes and things like that, and that's going to soften it as well. Well, yes, and I mean, they're, they're really worried. They're saying... Uh, This is translated by some households, this uh, boom has been translated by some households into a self-reinforcing feedback loop and therefore push up demand on the back of increased leverage. So in other words, people are borrowing more, but interest rates will invariably go up and unemployment is going up and that's a worry and growth is slowing down. Yeah, and the prices now, you've got a median price in Sydney of... What, thick end of 900,000, Melbourne's 800,000. It's getting to the point where the average wage earner is out of the market. Now, uh, yeah, and some worrying news coming out of Graduate Careers Australia. They're saying university graduates are now finding it harder to secure full-time employment than at any time since the 92-93 recession. And they're saying they're showing 71.3% of new bachelor degree graduates seeking full-time employment had found a job within four months of completion of their studies. And that is down on the 76.1% reached in 2012 and well short of the record 85.2% mark hit in 2008. Now, only twice in the 24-year history of the report has a graduate employment rate been lower than the rate recorded in 2013. That was 71.2% in 1993 and 70.3% in 1992. But still, 
uh, I have to say the graduates can at least count, so they'll know how to do 40 job applications yeah. Yeah. and chalk up 25 hours of community service work. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and dance a fandango in the middle. That's right. That's right, under the Abbott government's new changes to uh, work for the Dole scheme. Still, uh, there are signs that the trading environment might be strengthening. Uh, according to Dun & Bradstreet, uh, the number of business startups in Australia jumped by 23% compared to the previous quarter and up 8% from a year ago. They found that 62,160 enterprises commenced operations during the second quarter of this year. That's up from 50,539 in the three months before. I wonder how many of them went broke, though. Well, yes, indeed, indeed. Well, let's see. And also sales of new homes lifted in the quarter after surge in apartment sales, according to the Housing Industry Association. They increased 2%. So the housing market's looking fine at the moment. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Some people are getting pretty rich and others are getting worried. And uh, But also there's uh, the ANZ Roy Morgan survey, and uh, you have to take this in with the Ameri- boosting American comp consumer confidence figures uh, consumers in Australia have got their groove back confidence levels have rebounded to where they were before people started worrying about the budget government budget cuts the ANZ Roy Morgan show, survey shows consumer confidence levels have completely recovered from the sharp drop and uh, they've risen 2.4% in the past week but still I have to say they're still low by historical standards they are indeed and, and it's still volatile uh, the other big interesting uh, business story during the week was about the future of Malaysia Airlines. It could change its name following the flights MH17 and MH370, MH those disasters. And they're considering the name change after the MH17 crashed in Ukraine. Still got the mystery surrounding the fate of the MH317, which disappeared while en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing in March. And that name name change may well involve departure of Malaysia Airlines from international travel. I think I think so. I think they could end up being a domestic only airline. Yeah, or regional Southeast Asian airline. Tunabdul Razak, who was in a previous life um, Malaysia's treasurer, was talking on the box last night about exactly that. Well, the Malaysia government, which is the uh, which is the major shareholder in Malaysia Airlines has already begun that process of assessing the future shape of the airline. Needs to because it's losing $1.6 million a day. That's right. And of course, we're in profit season. And so some of the big profits, Leighton posted a net profit of $291.3 million. That's down 20% on the previous corresponding period of 362.2. Navitas Limited posted a 51.6 net profit, 51.6 million net profit. Uh, That's down 31%. QBE flagged a steep fall in interim profit, saying the specs of report an interim net profit after tax of $390 million. That's much lower than the $477 million recorded in the first half of 2013. And it sees cash profit in the half at around $415 million compared to $590 million in the previous corresponding period. Uh, Gemworth, on the other hand, has flagged a full-year profit of $250 million amid higher premiums as a strong property market leads to fewer claims. And net profit attributable to Laser Gold for six months was $18.8 million compared with a loss of $429.6 million. But, however, revenue slipped to $135.5 million. That's down from $180.2 million. So all up, I'd say those profit figures are not looking that good, Gary. No, and uh, the elephant in the room for QBE, of course, is Argentina. That's right. Where there's a big worry about work cover. And uh, about uh, defaulting. 
you know, QBE's got a bit of a, a bit of a hard time ahead. That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And uh, we'll be back next week. And next week we've got a great interview with Alec Gardner. He's the General Manager of Advanced Analytics at Teradata Australia New Zealand. He's going to be talking to us all about data and big data in particular for business. That'll be good. And, uh, of course, we'll have another economist. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at Talking Biz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe, have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week.